The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Thursday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Leslie Picker, live at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Two regional bank CEOs paint a picture of the industry less than a year after that widespread panic struck the sector. The CEOs of First Horizon and Synovus are with us after results. Plus, perhaps the call of the morning, an upgrade of Apple after three downgrades to start the year. Bank of America goes to buy. The analyst behind that call is with us. And then Nelson Peltz doubling down on his proxy fight with Disney. His message to us here at CNBC just this hour. Right now, though, there's a mixed picture in the equity markets. The Dow, the laggard here, down about uh, 56 points or so. The Nasdaq, the standout, up more than a percent today. Infotech, communication services, uh, the two best performing sectors this morning. You can see the 10-year at about 4.13 percent on the yield. Topping the tape this morning, the market breadth or the market losing breath, a smaller portion of stocks leading the gains we've seen. Bespoke pointing out 11 trading days into the year, the market cap weighted S&P 500 is outperforming the equal weighted index by a record margin. And as of yesterday, NVIDIA accounted for most of the gains for the S&P this year. Let's bring in CNBC's senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli. Uh, so, Mike, uh, we talked about breath. We had like what? three, four weeks where that was kind of the story, and now yeah. it's it's back to uh, market cap weighted again. Yeah, Leslie, I mean, generously, you could say the final two months of 2023 really were finally a very broad, comprehensive rally, most stocks participating. Everyone did get very excited about the idea uh, of what that meant for the underlying strength of the market. I, I would basically categorize what's been going on this year as an internal correction. Um, so essentially, you have most stocks giving back some of those gains. Uh, the question is whether it was really going to become a little more of a general move, uh, really capture the, uh, the overall headline market cap weighted indexes or not. You have had more stocks making new lows than highs yesterday in the New York Stock Exchange. Now, Part of this is just the regular pullback process. And I've started to see some work that suggests that, you know, the Nasdaq under the surface and, and the Russell 2000 already are starting to look sort of stretched enough to the downside for a tactical, you know, dip buying activity right now. So I think it's a little bit of a, of a nuanced uh, study here you have to make of what the market is really telling us. Breath does better when you have greater confidence that you have a very benign economic outcome where growth is going to be good and uh, the, the Fed is likely going to be easing relatively soon. So that kind of perfect world, we're having a little bit of a gut check on that view, even though uh, it certainly has not been disproven yet. Mike, I wonder if it's just been a collection of things weighing on the broader market, financials underwhelming on earnings, some issues with health care on yep. costs. Boeing and so forth weighing on aerospace all at a time where it seems like there's a little more to chew on in the AI on the AI front. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, there's always something, I suppose. But but also, I think that the the buy everything rally of, of December was kind of in the face of a lot of known challenges. To me, I don't know that you have to make a call this year that says it's going to be just a half dozen stocks or it's going to be absolutely every stock that that performs. Uh, I, one of the reasons I've been a little bit skeptical of this, we now have a broadening market theme is one, 
everybody wanted it and needed it so bad. And it just seemed like people were applauding it, and it's, it's what makes stock picking feel better and more fruitful. Two, uh, these big seven are cheaper on a earnings basis, price earnings basis now than they were at the peak two years ago because the earnings are growing so much and they account for a huge percentage of expected earnings growth in the coming year. And they act as defense when the market's a little bit uncertain. So it's tough to, to kind of have everything work at the expense of those stocks. I think the bigger question is, do we get a more general uh, pullback, 3 to 5% uh, that, that resets everything, and then we can move from there? Mm, yep. The question of when and, and whether we'll be able to buy on the dip here. Uh, Mike, thank you. Staying on the market, our next guest revising her 2024 S&P price target to 4900 in June and 5000 in December. That's above Wall Street's median year-end consensus of 4833 Joining us now, UBS Alignment Partners Managing Director, Allie McCartney. Thank you for being here, Allie. Good morning. So it's above the street median, but it's still only representing about a 4% upside this year. So are you expecting some choppiness to get to that level, or do you think things will be uh, you know, at least in terms of equity volatility, we've seen some rates volatility in 2023, but equity volatility is... Yeah, completely. But look, we've been talking about expecting more volatility for a very long time, and then we've gotten it in the interest rate market. I guess we had a little last year. It just didn't actually show up in the VIX. But look... Last year, we saw exactly what everybody was expecting in order to get us to a soft, not softish, the word we used to use, but soft landing, right? And that was inflation came down faster and um, in bigger size than was expected. The Fed seems to get behind that and the consumer strength and seems to be leaning towards interest rate cuts in 2024. We remain committed to that there will be interest rate cuts. We think the market, as evidenced by the pullback in those expectations, may be a little ahead of things. And even the data today may change that slightly. But at the end of the day, we have an earnings recession behind us going forward. So even if a lot of the things don't materialize that can send multiples up, we do see earnings that can take especially certain sectors, and often those sectors are the ones that carry the market up enough to see those healthy single-digit returns. Such as? <laughs> In terms of... Uh, sectors. Oh, where sectors. You think Where you think either margins or earnings are can surprise. To yeah, so look, we're expecting a 9% increase in earnings this year and a 6% in 2025. Largely... That's tech. That's big tech, right? You're seeing some of those numbers come in at projections of 25 to 30 percent, whereas you're seeing other sectors that don't have as much weight in the market. Healthcare, you mentioned. Consumer discretionary is one where we feel like the consumer has really held up. But exactly as the banks are coming to us and saying, you know, they're starting to see cracks there. And so if we're looking at the backward looking data, like the retail data that came, that's, again, the story of why 2023 worked. But what will be that story in 2024 for those sectors? We heard, you know, some comments in Davos about how the markets have almost shot themselves in the foot. And that's yeah. kind of part of the, the sentiment behind uh, the change in the swaps market, predicting, uh, you know, much more leaning toward a June rate cut versus a March rate cut. Um, do you think that the market hadn't been helping its, uh, you know, the quest to tame inflation um, by buying bonds at the end of the year? And that's kind of why we're seeing this more skittishness uh, surrounding the bond markets in, in recent weeks. Look, I think that there was a lot of exuberance in December, whether it was fueled by data, what was, it was fueled by a Santa Claus rally, whatever it was, obviously a 10 percent six week sort of 
took advantage or brought forward a lot of the expectations for this year. Now, one of the things, if you think about the bond market and this sort of like game of chicken that traders are playing with interest rates in the Fed, is if you had a year where bonds appreciated, let's say, low, uh, you know, high single digits and equity portfolios, which are mostly, and we believe should be, market cap weighted 25%, then right now, when you have historical underinvestment, even at market highs, there's some rotating rebalancing to do too, which I think is so much why there's sort of like a buyer's strike right now. It's hard to get excited about anything because earnings season has been sloppy. We think, as I talked about again, it is going to be sloppy and disparate. And so people are sort of in the show me and playing in the bond market before they're really going to get behind equities. And so to Mike Santoli's point, like we had a great day yesterday. We had been, you know, we had been using options to get a better entry point in the market. And yesterday we got hit at 4,700. So that's the kind of things that we're doing to thoughtfully, intentionally and discreetly increase risk a bit. Hmm. Meanwhile, we got Iowa caucuses under our belts. Yeah. Uh, New Hampshire's next week. Are clients saying I'm going to front load my activity, whether that's buying or selling in the first half? It's a really good question. So there is a lot of conversation about what this election means. And, you know, what we what we say is that history tells us that election years, markets tend to start pricing in or sort of being concerned in about the second quarter. I think, you know, we always say this time is different, but I think a lot of people economically and emotionally do feel this time is different. So perhaps we've already started to see that in some of the bearishness, or perhaps we start to see that earlier. The conversation is definitely there. But again, it's a little bit of sort of like a bifurcated experience, right? Because if we end up having a Republican win, we know that historically that's terrific for markets. Deregulation, less of a tax burden, whereas it's hard to say what's going to happen if we end up with, you know, a Democratic win here. So I think that people are going to be overtly and specifically watching politics, and that could be yet another source of pullbacks or volatility in the market this year. Yeah. It was interesting to me to hear some of the bank CEOs at Davos talking about how, you know, they're seeing a big pickup in client conversations surrounding M&A and risk on activity. And, the uh, M&A is a the fact huge that one. A, a, election year. Yeah, the M&A is a huge one and sort of we work with so many entrepreneurs that have venture capitalists all around them with terribly disparate perspectives on where valuations are and what the next step should be. So conversation and activity is as extreme as I've seen it in a while. Yeah. And part of that obviously has to do with some of the pent up demand there. Ali, sure. thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Meantime, from Wall Street to Washington, a potential government shutdown now just two days away and a key Senate vote coming up in the next hour. Our Emily Wilkins is in D.C. and has been following these negotiations. And we'll see how fraught they get, Emily, at least on the House side. Yeah, Carl, it'll be really interesting, although I'll say at least for today, with the Senate is expected to pass that package to temporarily keep the government open, funding part of it until March 1st, the other part of it until March 8th. And we're not expecting that to be too contentious. We're actually expecting after today for Congress really to be on a track to avoid a shutdown. And remember, this process has been really bipartisan. We saw 68 Democrats and Republicans come together earlier this week to really start moving on that process. And then they had to come together again 
again to get a time agreement so they could really move through this, make sure that they were getting it done before Friday. Now, the House could vote as well today. And remember, there's this really unique dynamic there because leaders are planning to use this expedited process that requires two-thirds support. This is similar to last time that we kept the government open through stopgap funding. And if this effectively really takes away the ability for, say, hardline conservatives um, or other sort of small factions to really be able to stop the process because it's bipartisan, because they're taking this route, we do expect it to pass uh, the House. Of course, now we're kicking the can down the road till March, and that means that Congress is moving closer to April. And at the end of April, if Congress has not passed this updated funding, an automatic 1% cut in federal funding is going to occur. That's going to really hit the defense industries. That's going to mean billions less for the Defense Department. Speaker Mike Johnson said yesterday that they need this extra time to allow Congress to individually pass all 12 of those spending bills that make up the overall government funding. He says they don't want to push them all through together. That's rushed. Uh, listen to what he said yesterday. This is the way the law is supposed to work, where individual appropriations bills and not one big massive omnibus spending bill are, are duly negotiated and amended and, and, and priorities fought for, and that's what we're doing. We just need a little more time on the calendar to do it. Guys, the race is now on for the House and the Senate to reconcile both of their 12 spending bills and be able to pass them through. I know that March seems a long way away, but as we've seen from Congress so many other times, things tend to move very, very quickly, and it won't be long, I think, before we're right back here again. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely a lot of procrastination down there in Washington. Uh, Emily, thank you. Still to come, two regional banking CEOs provide a snapshot of the industry 10 months after contagion swept the sector. The KRE regional bank ETF down 15% in the past 12 months, with some individual names down even more. Is now the time to pick up those stocks? The CEO of First Horizon is with us next. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Money Movers. Analysis from S&P shows private equity fundraising hit a six-year low in 2023 with aggregate value falling double digits year over year. And the number of private equity and VC funds launched also the lowest since 2019, about a third of the number launched last year. Record dry powder, the biggest contributor to that weak fundraising total. I would also add, Carl, that a lot of private equity or a lot of the limited partners that invest in private equity funds were kind of overexposed to this this asset class in the run up in 2021 2020 when valuations had gone up so so much so they were kind of trying to reallocate figure out the best way to kind of 
best places to put their money, uh, given that over allocation. And they're still clearly working through that. And another contributor to the dry powder, of course, has just been the, the very tepid market for exiting, the very tepid market for IPOs. A lot of the IPO activity is driven by sponsor-backed uh, exits, as well as just overall exits. And you talk to private equity executives, and they say there's still, still today in 2024, a disconnect between buyers and sellers in this world. Although, you know, we heard on the earnings calls over the last week or so, a lot of the bank executives expect that activity to pick up in particular private equity sales, private equity backed IPOs. And so that's something to look out for. Although, of course, that when we hear green shoots, you know, yes, we were told about the green shoots last year and they yes. didn't really happen. So we'll <laughs> we got, see if this we, year's better. Between the retail money on the sideline and the private equity dry powder, Maybe you could put those two together and make some kind of put on the market. We'll there's, a, there's a lot of money just on the side. Exactly. <laughs> a exactly. lot of just money out there. Whether they put it to work in certain areas remains to be seen. Yeah. Meantime, take a look at the regional banks today. Uh, First Horizon higher after delivering an earnings beat in Q4. Guidance for the year uh, coming in above consensus. And joining us in a CNBC exclusive this morning is First Horizon CEO Brian Jordan. Brian, great to have you back. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Street's taking a good look at uh, deposit costs, CET1 ratio, uh, loan growth, pretty much uh, ab above peers, at least what we've gotten so far, and wondering how you're managing to put all that together. Yes, we, we have a, a tremendous amount of momentum as we transition into 2024. Our, our bankers, our team have done a fantastic job. We did, a, a, I think, broadly speaking, a very good job of trying to control and manage deposit activities. We had very good deposit growth in 2023 and very good retention of those deposits. We managed deposit costs carefully so that we created a balance between compensating our clients fairly and at the same time uh, funding our balance sheet. Our capital levels have been strong and continue to build. And we think we're well positioned with a strong stable funding base, a strong capital base to continue to be very aggressive in the marketplace when we see good opportunities to support our customers and our communities. So when you think about challenges, are they centered around uh, continued unrealized losses, uh, efficiency in hiring, credit quality? What, what is top of that list? Yeah, in, in terms of, of challenges, I think it really is a, a economy that continues to grow at a fairly modest or slow pace, financial conditions have loosened a bit, in my view, since the December FOMC meeting, but they're still relatively tight. And I think that is, is probably the biggest obstacle we see in the near term is an economy that is likely to look a lot like 2023 and 2024 with modest levels of growth, maybe rate cuts coming at some point during the course of the year, but customers and businesses and consumers continuing to work through an environment with higher interest rates and slower growth. If the Fed were slower to lower those rates, what would that mean for your business? I ask because your deposit costs are pretty stable during the quarter. Uh, other banks didn't have um, that luxury. So would you rather see those cuts come sooner rather than later? Or is neutral actually serving you pretty well? Leslie, I'd say neutral serves us very, very well. We, we position our balance sheet to operate with rates up or down. And versus a lot of our regional peers, we tend to have a very balanced 
business model in terms of counter-cyclical businesses. So while lower rates would reduce our net interest income slightly, we would see a pickup in our counter-cyclical fee businesses, our mortgage lending business, our mortgage warehouse lending business, and most particularly our fixed income distribution business, FHN Financial. What about, um, you know, as we, we kind of teased this segment as being 10 months post the March regional bank crisis, um, I see your net charge-offs came in around uh, $36 million. That was lighter than estimates, non-performing loans, uh, $462 million. As you kind of assess the marketplace right now and some of the, the takeaways almost a year after the Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic, what happened with those last March, uh, how would you assess kind of the quality of the sector uh, in 2024? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a, a, a sense that there was a, a regional banking crisis in the spring, and I would argue that it was more a crisis of a few banks, and it was more business model related than it was anything in my view. Credit quality has continued to be pretty good across the industry. We've seen overall stability in credit quality. As you noted, our losses during the quarter were you know, 23 basis points, about $36, $38 million. And we feel very, very good about the outlook for credit, credit in, in the coming year. Now, we think that we're not seeing any significant trends. Most of the issues that we're, we're experiencing where non-performing assets are ticking up tend to be related to idiosyncratic stories. It, it's not a, a cross-section of the economy that is having issues, and it, we're encouraged by that. We've spent a tremendous amount of time over the, the really the, the back half of 2023 doing deep dives and understanding uh, how borrowers are performing, spending time with management teams, and we're encouraged that credit's going to hold up. And I think that's broadly true in the industry, and I think we will continue to see the regional banking part of the, uh, the economy continue to be there to support its customers. Yeah, we were having, uh, I would maybe existential conversations about regional banks a year ago, as Leslie pointed out, but uh, time has proven that uh, they do serve an important purpose in this country, at least, Brian. I appreciate the color on the quarter. Good to see you. All right. Thank you for having me. Brian Jordan. Much more coming up on the state of regional banks with the CEO of Synovus. Upbeat guidance has the stock up as well, uh, despite a top and bottom line miss. Watch Tesla today. Shares are lower this morning. Last hour, we incorrectly stated their Guggenheim rating on the name. Want to clarify, the firm does have a sell on Tesla, along with Bernstein's underperform on the street. We're back in a moment. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. We are about two hours into trading. Let's go post to post with Bob Bassani for a look at what's moving today, Bob. Uh, Leslie, we're uh, up 22 on the S&P, about flat for the year on the, uh, the S&P 500. But tech's leading the way. You heard about Taiwan Semi, uh, earnings above expectations. New high for that. And all, of the, uh, all the semis are moving. AMD is at a new high. The equipment makers like KLA, Tencore, Lamb Research are all doing well. And these software names have continued the rally that they started in November and December. I mean, Bill 
Montgomery has got to be ecstatic. This is a, a new high for uh, ServiceNow, historic high, uh, up 5% year to date, another 2% today. Salesforce continues. It's been a big leader in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's up uh, 4% year to date. Uh, that's doing well. Uh, Infosys is, uh, is doing well uh, on top of that. So it's really tech that's leading the charge. Uh, this, the regional banks are drooping today. Uh, U.S. Bancorp had earnings out recently, but they're all down. I'll show you why here. Just pivot around here. Just be careful here. Uh, Discover is, um, is a digital bank, essentially. Uh, and I love Discover because this is the old Diners Club people. Diners Club was the first credit card in the United States, 1950. Uh, Amex came in 59. And Discover bought uh, the Diners Club in uh, 2008. Uh, and essentially, it's a digital bank. So you want to look at things like loan growth, flattish generally. Uh, I think the reason that it's down, it's impacting some of the other banks, uh, is we're getting some of a slightly larger build for reserves than people had anticipated. So you want to look at loan growth, reserves. You want to look at interest income and non-interest income. So far, it's been fairly boring for most of the banks. But when you get reserve builds a little bit stronger than anticipated, that's going to be an issue. Finally, just want to note, we're going to be a big IPO tomorrow on the NASDAQ. Uh, this is one of the first big ones of the year here. Kospi, uh, believe it or not, this is a Kazakhstan-based super app. It's kind of like Tencent. You can do online banking and e-commerce. Fairly significant deal. It's going to be close to a billion-dollar deal, $18 billion market cap. That'll be trading on the NASDAQ scheduled for tomorrow. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob. We'll check in in a little while. I'm Bob Pisani. Let's get a news update this morning with Silvana Hanau. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Carl. Good morning. Hunter Biden's attorney is on Capitol Hill this morning. Sources tell NBC News he is there to sift for a transcribed interview with House Oversight, Judiciary and Ways and Means Committee staff. Kevin Morris received the request for the closed door interview in November as part of the Republican led impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Morris began advising the president's son in 2020. Japan signed an agreement with the U.S. today to buy up to 400 Tomahawk cruise missiles. It comes as part of a push from Japan's prime minister to double annual defense spending over concerns of rising security threats from neighbors China and North Korea. Japan is on track to be the world's third largest military spender, only behind the U.S. and China. And Meta is adding a feature to Instagram that aims to get teens to turn off their phones and go to sleep. The social media giant will start sending users under 18 something called nighttime nudges. They'll pop up on the app if they've been online for more than 10 minutes late at night, Carl. I think we could all use that. I know one household that definitely <laughs> will use that. Uh, that is amazing. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Silvana. You got it. It's interesting to watch uh, uh, Instagram sort of know their audience. <laughs> That's right. Although I feel like why limit it at 18? <laughs> that is definitely something I could use. Meantime, arguably the call of the day. After three downgrades to start the year, Apple gets an upgrade to buy over at B of A. Stock gets a 2% bump, and the analyst behind that call is going to join us after the break. Shares of Disney up amid a brewing proxy fight with Nelson Peltz and Tryon. Peltz joined Squawk on the Street earlier to talk about his vision for Disney and where he thinks improvements can be made. We filed our preliminary proxy statement and we opening our website, which is Restore the Magic. 
And we did all that, Jim, because we love Disney. You know, we love Disney, and it saddens me that the board didn't welcome me because our goal is just to work with them, to help them, and to help them make the company better. They need more capital invested. They need more capital invested now because the competition is getting keener. This board, from Bob to every in independent director, has underperformed the S&P on every measure, one year, three years, five years, 10 years. How much more do we have to go? How long do we have to continue to suffer with this great board? I made a run at them last year. They promised they were gonna improve things. I took them at their word. Things got worse. The stock went down, results got worse. Okay, so no more. I can't continue to give them more opportunities. And Disney filed its own proxy statement yesterday where it rejected uh, all of the activist nominees uh, for the board. They basically said that they have their own substantial plans uh, to move forward and improve Disney. Um, and, you know, given kind of the, the personal beef that has ensued in the last few years, they didn't think it was uh, the best case to put activists on the board at this point in time, but obviously a very colorful discussion you all had in the 9 a.m. hour uh, with Nelson Peltz. Uh, it is turning out to be fascinating, and that's even by Peltz standards. Mm -hmm. uh, this is going to be one to watch for sure. Uh, meantime, this bullish call over at B of A grabbing our attention this morning. They upgrade Apple to buy, establishing 225 from 208, implying more than 20% upside. They see AI features helping drive some future iPhone sales as consumers need to upgrade their hardware to keep up. Analysts behind that call joins us this morning, B of A's Wamsi Mohan. Wamsi, welcome back. Good to have you. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for having me. I was thinking of you because you've been with us through the years, going from a neutral stance, upgrading, going back to neutral, and hats off to the B of A desk today. They actually chart the instances in which you upgraded or downgraded, and it coincides pretty well with lows in Apple versus the S&P. Just talk about why now. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Look, we are very centrally driven by our belief that estimate revisions are what ultimately drive stock performance. We downgraded the stock in September of 2022 when we were standing at much more elevated estimates at 650 in Apple EPS, and we thought that they would do $6. Sure enough, they, they ended up doing something closer to $6 in earnings. As we stand here today, I think the situation and outlook is quite different. We're standing on the cusp of major upgrade cycles for the iPhone, which should drive positive estimate revision cycle. Secondarily, we think that services has got extremely easy comps, and there's a whole plethora of new services, not just for Gen AI, but also on top of the Vision Pro over time that will build to drive services momentum to be much stronger. So our view is that we're standing here looking at positive estimate revisions over the next two years, and that makes the stock extremely compelling, especially after a significant period of underperformance all the way from, from July of last year. Yeah, you go through some of those numbers, you talk about margins being stable, vertical integration. You also say that legal risks are manageable. I kind of raised some eyebrows. Why do you think that is? Because they can afford to pay any fine or there's no risk to changes to the model? 
No, Carl, I think that the viewpoint is really that, um, you know, we have to take it sort of case by case, right? So in the, in the Google uh, DOJ litigation, for instance, where they get very high margin contribution from, from Google, uh, $18, $20 billion annually, right? This is a significant amount that they get. Now, in, in an instance where the ruling, let's say, goes against Google, uh, we think that Apple has relationships with other search partners where the economics are actually superior to what they have with Google. And in some ways, we think of the Google agreement partially as a fixed component and partially as a variable component that's based on um, their, their tack rate or take rate. So when you, when you think about it through that perspective, it actually might be negative from a Google perspective, the ruling were to be that for, for them. But from an Apple perspective, it could end up actually putting them in a better position in the long run uh, and being positive. So you kind of have to dissect each individual case. There's a lot of noise about Europe DMA, which is another risk, right? And when you think about what Europe DMA could do and couldn't do, uh, yes, you might have an alternate app store and there's the risk of side loading, but Apple has many levers. I mean, you if you're going off the main app store and trying to buy something, you, you might compromise on the privacy, on the security, on the integrity of your data. Like, there's so many things to worry about that I think consumer choice is ultimately going to bring them back to Apple. So it just is a case-by-case -case basis, and if you look at all the legal risks that stand in, in, in what we can look at today, I just think they're all ultimately somewhat manageable. Uh, not to dismiss any of them outright, but I think in, in, when we look at the puts and takes, we feel pretty good about it. What about China weakness? Do you think that they've been able to make more inroads in other areas, other geographic pockets, to make up for some weakness in China? Yeah, Leslie, look, I mean, China is obviously being a big market. It's 44, 45 million units. The U.S. market's obviously larger than that. There is weakness in China. I think we've come here before and said, look, I mean, Huawei is something that's taking share, maybe four or five million units a year. I think that's continuing. Uh, but the risk is manageable. And why is that? If you look at the subtotal of like, you know, all the iPhones that are sold, between China and India, let's call it, uh, between China and the U.S., there's about 100 million units sold. So there's 130, 140 million more units that are sold globally. And if you look at the last two conference calls, the company highlighted a lot of countries that people don't really think about as big strongholds for iPhone growth. But they are, and we lay out in our note, a plethora of countries that are selling anywhere between one to 10 million units, each of which could grow, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 percent. And cumulatively, that does make up for weakness in China. And frankly, the U.S. market's not that bad either. So when we put that all together, yes, we acknowledge that there is weakness in China, but I think that's tactical, that's transitory. We don't see it as a structural overhang over the long term. It could move numbers a little bit in the March quarter. But that said, like there are other, other places where they could do much better and offset that weakness. And remember, from a reported number perspective, you also have foreign exchange that's moving in your favor as well right now. So there are plenty of offsets and puts and takes. Hey, finally, Wamsi, um, I imagine you've got a, a chance to try the Vision Pro. I had my first chance yesterday. Uh, Pre-orders begin tomorrow. I know it's going to be a, a small run to start and it's expensive, but how do you think about folding that into your model at least? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I'm, I'm going to be right in line over there trying to get one tomorrow morning. <laughs> look, I, I think that when, when we look at sort of the Vision Pro, we have to look at it as a Gen 1 device, right? Like the same thing happened with the watch. The same thing happened with AirPods. The Gen 1 device is something that tests the market. It's for the enthusiasts. It's for people who... who kind of our Apple loyalists and purists who want to try the next greatest thing. At $3,500, um, I still think it's going to be sold out like 
instantaneously. But at $3,500, right, what are you actually getting? You're getting a device that sort of opens up to this new concept of spatial computing, but also experiences that cannot be replicated in a 2D, non-immersive world, right? That is where we see the long tail opportunity. I mean, you've got 8 million sets of VR um, sets that are being sold annually at a $400 price point. Apple could get to a $1,500 to $2,000 price point comparable to Max. We think that they could be selling between 10 to 20 million units of this. So it's a matter of time, it's a matter of price points coming down. It's a Gen 1 product, we got to keep that in mind. All that said, those kinks are going to get worked out. And over time, we see this as a business that can actually exceed what the iPad business is purely in hardware revenues and combined with services revenues, a much larger opportunity. Wow, Awamzi, as, as we said, uh, your call uh, has historically been a bit of a fulcrum uh, for the stock. We'll definitely watch it closely. Uh, thanks for the time. Thank you very much, thanks for having me. We just mentioned Google, more layoffs today there. What that means for the year of efficiency, that's coming up. Plus, Birkenstock plummeting following its first public report as a company, that's coming up when Money Movers comes back. More layoffs at Google, this time CEO uh, Sundar Pichai reportedly cutting 100 employees at YouTube, and he warns more are coming this year. That's the focus of today's Tech Check with Deer Tabosa. D. Hey, Leslie, good morning. So Google was criticized for moving too slowly during the year of efficiency, but this year, no mega cap is cutting as much and as quickly. Units affected, they also include hardware, engineering, ad sales, so far. Last night, CEO Sundar Pichai told his workforce to expect more cuts, yet Wall Street's response this year, it has been lukewarm, perhaps because analysts and investors, they have been calling for more over the last year, while other mega caps like Meta and Amazon, they were cutting their workforces on an absolute basis. Google simply slowed hiring. But here's a question that I've been asking myself a lot recently. What if Google's layoffs are just the latest ones? They're just the beginning of an entirely new trend. Rather than playing catch-up or correcting post-pandemic, this is actually Google getting into position for an AI platform shift that will require a different kind of workforce. Pichai's memo to employees supports that idea. He wrote, quote, the reality is to create the capacity for AI investment, we have to make tough choices. And for some teams, that means removing layers to simplify execution and drive velocity. Take a look at this chart. Despite the Wall Street narrative that Google has been slow to cut its workforce, um, it actually became more productive than those of Microsoft, Amazon, and Meta from 2018 to 2022. It increased revenue per employee at a better rate than the others. Now, if it is adding on AI efficiencies, Google's workforce, it could stay ahead. But guys, I also don't want to underplay the human aspect of this. I have heard from employees at the company who are anxious and wondering if their division is next. And I thought this was interesting. Axios put this trend another way this morning quite succinctly. They wondered if the year of efficiency made me do it, has made way for AI made me do it. And that would be the new justification for layoffs. We're going to discuss more of this on the Tech Check podcast today. Producer Laura Batchelor will make her debut on the pod. And the layoffs, guys, they just continue to roll in this year beyond mega cap. And maybe this is an entirely new wave. We could see more. And uh, blame it on the machines, it sounds like. AI made me do it. Deirdre, thank you. The CEO of Regional Bank Synovus is after the break, reapproaching the levels it was trading at before the sharp sell-off in regionals last spring. Stay with us.
Let's close out the hour with another set of regional bank results. Sonovis posting an earnings miss in Q4 after receiving a $51 million FDIC special assessment, but shares higher, up 3.6% right now as the company issues upbeat guidance for both deposits and loans in fiscal 24. Joining us now in a CNBC exclusive to discuss Sonovis CEO Kevin Blair. Kevin, uh, you know, the market clearly very excited by what they're seeing in the quarter. You have net interest margins rising next year as well. When through the course of 2024 do you see deposit costs peaking? And how is this guidance altered if there aren't rate cuts in, in March, if they're pushed out to further in the year? So, you know, Leslie, it's great being with you. And I think just to, to, to you know, fact check something, I think we actually beat for the quarter, which is part of the reason that the, the stock is up. But if you look into next year and you think about interest rates and pre- predominantly the deposit rates, we think they're going to peak in the first quarter. Uh, and we've seen the pace at which deposits reprice slow in the third quarter, the fourth quarter. And now as we're re- reaching peak levels, we'll see that peak, not just because of changes in the underlying deposit rates, but ultimately because of our mix and paying off higher cost wholesale funding. If rates were to stay higher for longer, it's actually a good thing for Synovus. We're fairly neutral to the front end of the curve. So short run, it would be good for our NII uh, for 2024. But even if the Fed were to start to ease, uh, it would have a short-term impact in the compression of our margin. But let's say over a 12-month period through the cycle, being neutral to the front end of the curve, our margin, although it would contract a bit, would just return to the pre-easing uh, NIM level. So you know, we really try to build a business model that is not predicated on winning or losing when rates move, but rather winning from uh, taking market share and growing our client relationships. What about the asset side of the balance sheet in terms of credit quality? Uh, we spoke yesterday with Terry Turner of Pinnacle Financial, which also operates in the South, and he said that consumer and business environment down in the South is stronger than the rest of the country, and that's why their guidance wasn't pricing in much uh, in the way of credit deterioration. Are you seeing the same phenomenon uh, in the markets that you serve? Absolutely. The Southeast is uh, insulated from some of the challenges that the rest of the United States has seen. And there's some factors, you know, population inflow, household income growth, and just the overall demographics. From a credit standpoint, I think it's important uh, when we look at our last year, we had total charge-offs right around 28 basis points. And if you look at that relative to the last five years, uh, that was about 20 basis points. So yes, we've seen a slight increase over what we've seen, but it's important to note those are coming off historically very low levels. And so we do expect credit costs to increase. The Southeast is gonna be one of the reasons that we continue to perform very well. Secondarily, we've really diversified our balance sheet over the last 10 years to uh, into uh, multiple industries across multiple asset classes. So that will help with any sort of um, credit tension that we're, we're seeing. And then when we're looking at the asset classes, so you mentioned the Southeast and most people talk about real estate. When we look at our real estate exposure in the Southeast, you know, multifamily seen two and a half percent growth in rent uh, in rent this past year. Occupancy levels are at 95%. So we feel really good about the underlying performance of our borrowers, of the, uh, of the footprint. And ultimately we think that's gonna allow us to keep our credit costs well managed. Well managed, but you are expecting them to go higher. Can you give us any color about kind of where you're seeing stronger, uh, stronger borrower capacity versus those that look to be uh, showing potentially some cracks after we've been in this uh, higher interest rate environment for quite some time now? You know, we, we do a survey uh, every quarter that asks our borrowers, you know, trying to uh, evaluate their sentiment. 
Obviously, the larger borrowers are carrying extra cash on their balance sheet, and so they have the ability to borrow money. Uh, with rates being higher, they've drawn down their lines, they're using their cash, and so I think as rates start to abate, you'll see some of the larger borrowers start to enter the marketplace again and have a higher demand. Capital expenditure has declined as a result of higher interest rates, and we think that's going to drive some loan demand. And our CRE pipelines have basically dried up. With rates rising, cap rates at uh, significantly higher levels, we haven't seen a lot of demand for new projects or for refinancing existing CRE projects. So uh, it's really the commercial space where we think there'll be a healthy uh, level of growth. We see that in our middle market areas, our corporate investment banking and specialty lending areas. Those, those businesses have grown for us mid-single digits in 2023, and we think they'll replicate that in 2024. We've been talking a little bit about the, the capital rules this week with the comment period ending um, on Tuesday. Uh, these are the Basel III endgame rules that would hike requirements for the largest banks. What would that mean for Synovus um, specifically if that were to, if that proposal were to pass in its current form? Really, I, I've talked about being in the Goldilocks size amongst banks. At $60 billion, we would fall below that threshold at $100 billion. And you know, being above a $10 billion bank, I, I tell everyone we have the capabilities and functionalities to compete with the largest institutions, but we also have not lost sight of our clients. And so we provide the same level of personal attention as a smaller institution. And so our business model is not only great for winning market share, it's also great from a regulatory environment. Although we wouldn't have to comply with a lot of those rules and the enhanced prudential standards, there's a lot of things that would start to trickle down, whether it be changes in our stress testing, how we do internal liquidity stress testing or capital testing, but there wouldn't be any requirement for any long-term debt issuance. There wouldn't be any requirement to carry additional capital. So I think we sit in that really good space where we can uh, perform a lot of the, the regulatory stress test and be prepared for some of the rules and regulations if we were to pass through $100 billion in the future, but we're not having to spend all the expense and build some of the, the data sets that would make us comply with those rules. Yeah, and it may be an incentive for you to stay kind of below that $100 billion threshold, not buy anything, not grow too quickly. Uh, Kevin, thank you. Thank you, Leslie. It's great being with you. Meantime, markets trying to hang in there. Uh, we opened with some losses on the Dow, but we managed to shave those. Actually, Dow went positive briefly here a few moments ago. We'll watch that. S&P 4760 appears to be the number we're going to hug uh, today. With most of the data out of the way, we're going to get Bostic twice today as the Fed speak continues uh, before we move on to things like UMish tomorrow. Yeah, and then winners today, information technology, communication services, and industrial. So uh, definitely seeing kind of a reversal of what we experienced yesterday. Yeah, keep an eye on that as we close out the week tomorrow. You might not think that a few simple words could make you crave McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. But if you listen closely to the sound of me saying McGriddles, McMuffin, you might be wrong. Ba -ba -ba -ba.